0: public's bloody ground the 30th of May Oh brothers lift your voices high for them that died that day The men who make our country steal the toilers in the mill They said in union is our strength and justice is our will We will not be Tom Girdler's slaves but free men will we be List to the voices from their graves, we died to set you free. In ordered ranks, they all marched on to picket Girdler's mill. They did not know that Girdler's cops had orders, shoot to kill. As they marched on so peaceably, old glory waving high. Girdler's gunmen took their aim And the bullets began to fly That deep, deep red will never fade From Republic's bloody ground The workers, they will not forget They'll sing this song around They'll not forget Tom Girdler's name Or Girdler's bloody hand He'll be a sign of tyranny throughout the world's broad land. Men and women of the working class, and you little children too. Remember that Memorial Day, and the dead who died for you.
1: Hi and welcome to Labor History Today for the week of May 27th. I'm your host, Chris Garlock, and on today's show, Joe McCartan, Ben Blake, and Julie Green remember the 1937 Memorial Day Massacre when police opened fire on striking steelworkers at Republic Steel in South Chicago, killing 10 and wounding more than 160. Patrick Dixon interviews Tom Seto on the 1941 strike by animators against Walt Disney, Cito, a well-known American animator, he's worked on dozens of films, including Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Lion King, and Shrek, is the author of Drawing the Line, the untold story of the animation unions from Bosco to Bart Simpson. And in this week's Labor History Object of the Week, we take a look at a United Farmworker banner commemorating the 1965 strike against grape growers in California. The banner is part of the exhibit for liberty, justice, and equality unions making history in America at the George Meany Labor Archives at the University of Maryland College Park campus. Plus, we've got music by Joe Glazer, the Eurekas, Willie Sordle, and Joan Baez. Enjoy the show. Okay, there you go. Let's do it. All right, so uh, welcome to this week's edition, and this is our uh, Memorial Day edition of Labor History Today. And fittingly, uh, our topic is the 1937 Memorial Day Massacre in, uh, in Chicago. So uh, Ben, we just found out that uh, you wrote a paper, so <laughs> that gives you first up.
2: And, and I actually worked at U.S. Steel Gary Works, which was right next door to Republic wow. Steel, where the massacre occurred okay. in South Chicago. So that's what inspired me to learn more about the steelworkers' history and uh, the so what, uh, what happened. Well, uh, there was uh, in South Chicago. It was it was in the middle of a major strike of what was called the Little Steel companies, which was everyone else but U.S. Steel. U.S. Steel had recognized the steelworkers' organizing committee, the the CIO, Congress of Industrial Unions uh, organizations. Uh, union within the steel industry, the industrial union. Um, U.S. Steel had done that without without a strike. You know, it was just negotiated. John L. Lewis negotiated it. Uh, it was kind of in the wake of the GM sit-downs, and so U.S. Steel didn't want the same thing to happen in their plants. They were beginning to get war contracts, wanted to keep them going, so they signed up. That didn't happen with Little Steel, which was led by um, a guy named Tom Girdler of Republic Steel, who was the like today would be considered some of the conservative anti-union types that exist today who uh, staunchly opposed the union. He said he was called by the steelworkers a uh, potatoes girdler uh, because he said uh, he had a farm and he said he would go back to growing potatoes before he recognized <laughs> the union. Uh, so that's how he was characterized by, by the workers. But he was staunchly anti-union. Um, His company alone bought Tommy Guns, Tommy Machine, Thompson Machine Guns, 50,000 rounds of ammunition before the strike started. Uh, Just his company, it was one of uh, uh, two other companies that were in Little Steel Strike, uh, Youngstown Sheet and Tube um, and
1: uh,
2: uh, Inland Steel. So...
1: Wait, 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 I'm sorry, I have to stop you there. Okay. So this is 1937. Yes. And there's a strike in the offing. And this it's guy in progress. It's in progress, yeah. and this yeah. guy does what again?
3: <laughs> well, before the strike, he started getting the machine guns, Yeah, yeah, was they started. Like, just like a, like a, I mean, what, like what like a standard th- what
1: people did. Yes, <laughs>
2: it was pretty standard. Yeah. The La Follette committee that followed in this, like, went and investigated. That's where how we know about it, uh, Senator La Follette, uh, Robert La Follette, uh, investigated this, and that's how we know afterwards. But all these companies stockpiled large amounts of ammunition. And prior to the Memorial Day strike, uh, two workers were shot and killed in what was called the uh, Women's Day Massacre in Youngstown. Uh, a worker was killed in Cumberland, Maryland, was shot dead on the picket line. Uh, uh, so that there, there were a total of 18 workers that were killed overall during that strike. And so the companies were very well prepared, and they were highly armed. They had Republic Steel police. um, That you know, uh, there's a there's a great video in Monroe, Michigan, where they broke the strike, and they have two Republic Steel police with Thompson machine guns and sheriff reinforcing Sheriff Hogg in that county. Uh, So um, the workers were really courageous in facing down those weapons and literally facing down gunfire. and in Chicago, uh, that was kind of at the height of the strike. And so you had a protest rally called uh, outside the union, uh, the union Hall. And so maybe 1,000, 1,500 people gathered. It was a Sunday event. It was sort of, the atmosphere was a, uh, like a picnic holiday atmosphere uh, over the holiday weekend. And you had kind of steelworkers from around the Chicago region there. And so they decided to march on the South Works of um, uh, Republic Steel. And up to that point, the uh, company had and the Chicago police had prevented any kind of picketing. So the idea of marching on the mill was to uh, establish the right to picket. And uh, so the march began and crossed this big field. And the, the Chicago police, who were housed within the steel mill, paid for by the company and, and equipped by the company to some extent, uh, basically met the workers lined up uh, at the edge of the field as it uh, came close to the mill. And uh, there's not a real clear account, but there was kind of a uh, the po- several hundred police blocked the line, and uh, the pr- from the protesters marching on the mill, and uh, the words were exchanged. Uh,
1: not, not like, "Hey, how you doing? Nice day." No. <laughs> well, it. I mean, it's interesting. Like,
2: um, the frontline accounts seem to say that uh, there might have been some things thrown from the back of of the protests, of limbs or something with stones or limbs. I mean, nothing, you know, the workers weren't armed and uh, there might have been something going on like that, something very minor. But what happened was the police actually opened fire at point blank.
1: With live ammunition.
2: With live ammunition. And this is caught on, it was caught on th- four newsreels. And uh, the Illinois uh, Labor History Society has re- uh, has a CD uh, or DVD of the actual uh, attack on the workers and uh, I think it's available other places it's available on YouTube and it's very scary to watch because you see workers fleeing and running away and police shooting them in the back and so uh, you know, for a while
3: those were suppressed isn't that right? The film. Yeah, yeah. like movie, re- movie reels like that used to be shown before movies in sure. theaters but this particular footage Ben's talking about was so inflammatory. Because it's clear that the police were shooting into people's backs
1: well and Joe, I need you to give us some context here because I mean I, you know a lot of us have seen the photos i mean and, and you know if you study anything about labor history there's you know there's there's lots of massacres um, yeah. you know, but it just seems astounding to me, you know, just hearing Ben talk about how this was this was premeditated it wasn't you know, right. so so can you set some sort of context for this? I mean, why was it a routine thing for employers well, that, to you know prepare for a strike by getting guns?
3: Right. Well, that that kind of thing happened all over the place in 1919, say, in the strikes right after World War One, um, including the steel strike. Then, lot lots of you know, um, state enforced violence uh, helped break that strike. The Wagner Act had only been passed in 1935, so you know, theoretically workers had a right to organize, they had a right to strike, but even then that law was, people didn't know for sure whether it would withstand the Supreme Court scrutiny. It, it in fact, was before the court in the spring of 1937, it got decided I think in mid-April, I think it was around April 13th. The Supreme Court upheld that law by a five to four vote. Um, so seemingly the court had validated people have a right to organize they have a right to strike and yet employers, uh, as was clear in the in the little steel companies, um, basically said the law be damned you know <laughs> they had you know run things uh, differently for a half century and uh, they weren't prepared to give up some of the old methods and as you know, Ben recounts in Chicago, um, they, you know, as happened time after time, um, they, you know, co- close collaboration often with police and, and the local big employer. Um, the police, um, as Ben says, they're they're housed and billeted by the company, and you know they're there to protect the company. They uh,
4: thought they could strong arm it and use yeah. violence, and you know, in effect, they were right. Right? I mean. 30 some people are wounded by gunfire, 10 people are killed in that massacre, 7 of them were shot in the back. The next day the Chicago Tribune headline read Chicagoans led in steel strike by outsiders. Mm. Oh wow. And mm. Failed to list the names of the dead.
3: Um, yeah, so the public gets an idea that somehow radicals and instigated this violence. Uh, Started it, you know. But as Ben says, you know, the footage shows otherwise.
1: Which sort of goes back yeah. to our conversation last week about the whole thing about immigrants. I mean, it's, it's either explicit or implicit in that sort of you know outsiders kind right, of right? It's a way right? of othering
4: them, right, right? To not see them as humans who have just you know paid with their lives by fighting for their rights. By not listing their names, by talking about outsiders in control or communists, you're mm-hmm. you're making them less than human.
3: Mm-hmm. Like somehow they ask for it. Yeah.
1: Well, but what's interesting to me, uh, a couple things on this. You know, the idea that um, you know that unions—it's a reminder that unions, and this is you know the, the really the later thirties, right? This happens in. Well, this was, this was
3: at the height of union influence, almost. Right. right? The high water uh, mark right. for unions, right? And, uh, and yet, uh, yeah. the yet first five months of 1937 were extraordinarily important. Uh, they were both a high point, but you could also say kind of a turning point. Um, it was, uh, I think, on December 30th of 36, that the Flint sit-down strike began. It ended on February 11th, with you know GM Long, an anti-union company having to recognize the Union. And GM tried to do the same kind of thing. They sent um, cops to try to, uh, you know, get the workers out of the plant in the famous Battle of the Running Bulls. Um, So GM tried to push back. They failed. They recognized the Union. Um, U.S. Steel followed, as Ben said. They concluded, you know, they didn't want a strike. they were almost half of the steel market of the country, so they felt like, well, we can work out a deal with the union, and we can, you know, basically absorb or pass on the costs. But the little steel companies did not want to follow U.S. Steel. They were determined to fight, and and it was only G.M. at that point of the automakers who'd recognize the union, and only U.S. Steel of the steel companies, so. Girdler and the others just said we don't have to do this, and um, you know Julie, I'm sure can talk more about this. But this kind of revealed Roosevelt's tenuous position too, because he'd been a supporter of the labor movement, uh, and in effect, uh, his sympathy had been crucial in the wins in Flint and um, you know the breakthrough probably at U.S. Steel. but um, he was not necessarily a reliable ally either.
4: Right. right. The, at this point, he's under tremendous pressure, too, right? Because corporations capital is is fleeing. they're shifting against him, big time they're mobilizing. Um, and so he's you know he's felt some pressure all along, I'm sure from them. But at this moment, he, Responds. John Lewis appeals to him um, to intervene to take a stand on the side of the workers, and FDR not only refuses, but he responds by saying, "A plague on both your houses." Wow! Mm-hmm. Wow! So you're on your own. Yeah, he's turned yeah. his back to the whole thing.
1: So yeah. when he said that, just to be clear, he said that was that just a private thing to Lewis, or was that out there so that the companies knew?
4: it was a public response. it was, it was public.
1: quoted it was, it
3: was I think it was one so of the things knew. he said in one of his press gaggles that he sometimes had you know right um, So
4: this is really the moment when the tide turns against labor right. it ends labor's upsurge in that decade and it's not until the you know with the military buildup mm-hmm. um, and entrance into war in the 40s that Finally, Little Steel signs a contract.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, in the, in the Labor Fest, we've been uh, working with Goethe Institute to celebrate the 200th birthday of Karl Marx, and so it's been very interesting. To, you know, it's a, frankly, it's been a long time since I thought this much <laughs> about Marx, although it keeps popping up, because we just, uh, th- this idea of this struggle between capital and labor, but I'm thinking about, you know, this is the pitch. These are pitched battles. I mean, and and Joe, Mm -hmm. you're saying this is, you know, a couple of years of, you know, literally, you know, just, you know, capital arming itself and workers largely unarmed, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also, you can tell me if I'm going too far here, but it's making me think about now with, you know, teachers who are doing illegal strikes. Most of these folks do not legally have the right to strike, and yet, They've gotten to a point where they're walking out. Is are there are there connections here that I'm just making up?
4: Well, you know, labor, in effect, doesn't have the right to organize in this country anymore. Right. I mean, the 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 limits have become so severe that we really rely upon um, creative mobilizations like what teachers are doing and cab drivers and domestic workers and the fight for 15. Those kinds of creative tactics are what's needed. So it's um, it's an interesting comparison in the sense, I mean, you don't have machine guns being purchased by employers right now, so it's a very different time in that sense. But in terms of the need for really creative forms of mobilization, it's, it's very similar.
2: It's... Uh, a couple of questions on, or points on the role of Roosevelt is very interesting because um, in Youngstown, when you had the Women's Day massacre, where two workers were shot and killed, like in the middle of the night, they just company. It was a big uh, picket line battle that that had emerged out of the police attacking women on the picket line and saying they didn't have the right to picket.
1: And can, can we and just talk death. about that episode because you brought it up before, and I just want to get a history. Mm-hmm. So because this comes up again and again and again, right? This this right to pick it and where you can pick it and who can pick it and so this sounds like one of the sort of you know this is this is it the pretext I mean what's what's going on there
2: it in Youngstown the workers were allowed to pick it uh, and actually there were quite a few mass pickets At the beginning of the strike there were thousands of workers on the picket line in Youngstown and the police were kind of overwhelmed they kept trying to recruit you know vigilantes and things to deputize vigilantes, but they could never really get a big enough force to really uh, affect the mass picketing. Uh, Chicago, different story where it was pretty much picketing was banned. It never was established at South War or the Republic uh, Works. Uh, but So it was kind of different depending on the local uh, circumstances. Um, but I think a couple of points was that most of, from what I could find out. Uh, just in terms of you know Marx and Marxism things, the Communist Party did play a big role in the strike, at least at kind of the grassroots rank and file level. The organizers in Youngstown, Boat and there was Gus Hall, pretty famous the guy. He organized, he was a district organizer in Warren, Ohio, the big steel mill there.
1: And Gus was was he then the head of the Communist Party? No, that he was, that he was a future. local
2: local organizer okay. and. And uh, there were two organizers in Youngstown that were Communist Party that played leading roles. And these are full-time organizers hired by John Lewis and Phil Murray with knowledge that they were Communist Party, but knowing they were good organizers and would do a a good job. And they did. But what happened was after this big battle, which the irony was the Communist Party local leadership there was doing everything they could to prevent violence. But you had the sheriff, who was a silver shirt, a fascist, who was organizing these militias and was trying to instigate as much violence as possible to defeat the strike, and the main people who were organizing for peaceful picketing and were doing everything they could. And there were a number of instances where they calmed things down. Um, Bobby Burke and, uh, uh, was one of the organizers, and when this, when the shooting, this big, wh- what happened was the uh, the women earlier in the day were attacked by the pickets, and then. Uh, It escalated. There was tear gas. It escalated. And then by night, it was actually a gun battle. The steel workers went home, got their hunting rifles, came down the hill, and started firing across at the mainly Republic Steel Police. So you had an all-night gun battle. But in the midst of this, literally, you had the Union storefront office across the street. The Republic Steel Police are firing into it pretty much (laughs) all night. Mm. And you have Bobby Burke, who's like, I don't know, he's like 20 years old, uh, who had been kicked out of Colombia for, boy- for an anti-Nazi protest, came back to his hometown, and then was hired as a steelworker organizer. He's literally on the floor of the Union Hall, grabbing the phone, talking to the sheriff, telling them to call a ceasefire. And to me, there's tremendous irony there, because he's, of course, the kind of Communist Party is being vilified as instigating violence and anarchy. And you know Tom goger has been giving speeches around the country on this for months. But it was the communist party that was trying to instigate a ceasefire and they finally did by morning but uh the head of the sheriff of mahoning county would not come and intervene you know he was too scared to come down <laughs> <the> picket <laughs> line so I been so, too. so he and right. he was the fascist he was he was actually as later documented pretty much documented as a fascist but uh what then later happened was as a result of this violence uh the democratic governor davy called in the national guard well, at that time, of course, the Communist Party had the Popular Front in support of, you know, was pretty much aligned with Roosevelt. And pretty much welcomed, everyone welcomed the National Guard in, thinking they would side with the strikers, that they would keep the mills closed until they could cut a deal and get union recognition on a contract. But within a few days, uh, the Ohio National Guard just started herding breakers in, and the, the strike was broken. Um, so that was kind of And Roosevelt, you know, no question played a role in approving the intervention of the guard and then just kind of played a hands-off role. He didn't, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously didn't order breaking of the strike, but people knew that once the guard was called in there, the local forces would take advantage of that situation. And the local sheriff, again, silvershirt issued all these injunctions that were made up that limited picketing and so forth. Um, But uh, Julie makes a really good point is that The short-term struggle was a complete defeat, and it led to, as I understand it, the drive to organize the South basically was stalled out. There were so many resources were spent Mm -hmm. on the little steel strike that they weren't able to launch the big Operation Dixie they really wanted to launch. Um, And so the CIO kind of had to retreat. Uh, But a lot of these organizers, like there's great stories in Youngstown. They were all basically on WPA and a crew of them, they were mm-hmm. like breaking stones for a like reservoir with sledgehammers, but they were all steel workers. Mm-hmm. And they kept mm-hmm. the union, they kept paying dues. There was a corps mm-hmm. that maintained the union in unemployment, and then when the war boom and and the companies were desperate for labor, they went back into the mills and they, they kept organizing all the way through those those several years after the strike. So then by 42, the company signs a contract Com is still president of the company, but he doesn't show up for the signing, (laughs) (laughs) and he didn't go back to his farm, you know, (laughs) to the disappointment. Yeah, to the disappointment. But the Roosevelt shifted him out of steel into the aircraft industry, so (laughs) to try to keep uh, labor peace, you know, during the war.
1: All right. Well, unless uh, there's anything else on the uh, Memorial Day massacre, I think we'll we'll move on.
4: Sure.
5: So when you're shopping and see them scab goods on the shelf, raise a little hell, don't keep it to yourself. Go up to that manager, tell him how you stand. Say, get rid of that stuff as quick as you can. Of course, he can ignore you if he wants to. After all, you're only one person. But just tell me, how's he going to ignore a whole picket line? Marching? Singing? Telling the truth about him? right on his front door step. So you see, my friends, right? Here's a whole lot. You put you and me together, and look what we got. We got more power than money can buy. Can't buy a fight for justice, no matter how you try. So join the boycott. Join that fight. If we all work together, well, we'll be just a little bit closer to making things all right now, won't we?
1: For this week's Labor History Object of the Week, I talked to curator Ben Blake about a United Farmworker banner commemorating the 1965 strike against grape growers in California. The banner is part of the exhibit for Liberty, Justice, and Equality, Unions Making History in America. It's at the George Meany Labor Archives at the University of Maryland College Park campus.
2: Yeah, this is an amazing flag from the United Farmworkers organizing. Uh, It commemorates the 25th anniversary of the Lano
1: strikes. And it looks to be, of course, it's the classic uh, farm workers red. And, uh, of course, a lot of the photos from the time are black and white. But if you've seen footage, they they always had these red banners with the uh, the red and black, right?
2: Yes. And that's kind of one of the reasons we put it in the exhibit is it's really stunning and really stands out. And it kind of puts you in that time when they had these flags on the picket lines out in the fields uh, calling workers out on strike.
1: Now, on this one, as you as you mentioned, this is a com- this commemorates it. Uh, so you've got the United Farm Workers AFL CIO, but and then in the middle, uh, you've got, of course, the, uh, uh, the 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 classic bird that the uh, the farm workers. Um, and I actually don't know. It's, it's an, an eagle. eagle, I believe. It's an eagle. okay. Yes. Um, and then underneath that, it says
2: uh, 25th Anniversary Delano 1987.
1: That's really, really cool. And then we're looking at some signatures. Uh, and I see, obviously, up here on the uh, upper left, uh, that's very clearly Cesar Chavez. What's underneath there? I think that's Arturo Rodriguez, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Right. Oh, and Dolores Huerta. Dolores Huerta. Wow. wow, very cool. So these would be all, I assume, the folks who would have been involved uh, with that strike. Yes, that's right. These
2: would be the leaders of the strike.
1: And then underneath that, and also in this case, is... is uh, Uh, I see uh, a purple don't buy scab grapes button, um, which I actually remember these from when I was a kid and and the boycott was going on.
2: Yes, yes, that the buttons played, I think, a big role in publicizing the strike and the
1: national boycott. And then here's one I've never seen before. It's a little green button. Uh, Oh, that's Nixon. Nixon drinks ripple, boycott gallo. I wish Peter Jones were here.
2: Yes, that button was particularly to protest. Nixon bought scab wine, used a government contract to buy scab wine to try to undermine the strike. So that button was specifically to protest that.
1: And then uh, also here in the case, uh, looks like some uh, cartoons, uh, AFL-CIO farm workers uh, on the one side. Oh, and here's uh, something. Actually, it's a representation of that banner we were just looking at, Fifth Year of the Grape Strike.
2: Yes, these cartoons uh, are from the AFL-CIO news, and they were part of uh, editorials and articles that promoted uh, uh, and publicized solidarity with the farm workers.
1: That's right. I see in the lower left here. It uh, looks like Stan. Is that uh, who's who's the uh, artist? I'm not sure. Oh, Stampone, John Stampone, uh, for the AFL-CIO. Look, this uh, now. This is original artwork.
2: Yes, that's right. We have hundreds of. Uh, of uh, his uh, original uh, artwork in our collection,
1: because I can see uh, I'm looking. Uh, uh, some of our listeners won't won't uh, won't remember this, but it looks like actual whiteout <laughs> on the artwork, uh, where it looks like he made some corrections.
2: Yeah, it's all hand handcrafted artwork, and it's very popular, particularly when we do tours. People love looking at the cartoons. And that's one of the reasons we included him in the exhibit.
1: Okay. Well, this is a really wonderful sort of uh, way to touch. Well, I can't touch it because it is behind protective glass. (laughs) Uh, But to really see some actual uh, history. Thanks very much, Ben.
2: Great. Thank you, Chris. They can't cheat us. They won't shake
1: us. They can't beat us.
0: They've tried it all before, but with their tricks and legal wars. And there's nothing they can do,
5: cause we're unions through and through. We're proud and strong,
4: we do no wrong, keep the workers safe.
1: Next, Patrick Dixon interviews Tom Seto on the 1941 strike by animators against Walt Disney. Sito, a well-known American animator, he's worked on dozens of films, including Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Lion King, and Shrek, is the author of Drawing the Line, the untold story of the animation unions from Bosco to Bart Simpson.
6: Well, Welcome to Labor History Today. Thanks for joining us, Tom.
7: Thank you very much,
6: so we're talking about animators today and um I was hoping you could start by telling us a bit about the craft of the animator in the early twentieth century as as cartoons become a form of math entertainment
7: sure sure um when 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 animation began at the beginning of the of the twentieth century um uh, it was originally thought that like one artist. Would would do all the individual drawings, much like uh, um, uh, comic strips in newspapers, which were at that time were sort of like the mass media of the era. You know, people like Windsor McKay and George McManus. Everybody wanted to, uh, to do newspaper cartoons. When animation began, you realized that the sheer volume of drawings required to create an animated film was beyond the scope of most individual artists. Um, A fellow named John Randolph Bray, around 1913, uh, read the the, the same book on scientific management uh, 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 that uh, Henry Ford had developed his assembly line from. So he created what we would today call the the, uh, production pipeline, where he created job specificity for various artists, saying like one artist will color, one artist will come up with the gags, one artist will draw the movement. Another one will paint, and um, if you look at a modern animated film, uh, when the credits roll, you'll see these Roman legions of names going by. It's, you know, all these people all have their very specific tasks. So um, this system was promulgated at the yeah at, in like the first decades of the 20th century, and sort of re- reached its apogee by like around the late 1930s with the the era of Hollywood, where um what we had, what we, uh, happened in Hollywood was that Hollywood sort of took the process of motion picture production and industrialized it. So instead of making a random film once in a while, there was a quota. So many films came out a, a month. Um, likewise with the short film cartoons, the studios expected a short every six weeks to come out of Warner Brothers or at Disney or MGM. So this employed a lot of artists. A, a lot of desks and a lot of uh, uh, man hours to, to to create these these films.
6: And so where are these artists coming from? Are they all going to the same school, or are they just people who developed a skill for drawing? How does that work?
7: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the early twentieth century, um, there weren't really specifically schools for this. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of the artists came out of you know basic sort of drawing academies, where you know they they learn to draw, they had some talent they learned a few tricks of the trade and then they went to work uh uh the the artists that who created um these animated classics basically uh the the earliest generations were were more self-taught um or learned the more traditional you know ways of drawing and sort of created the rules as they went along you know um much like much like computers in our own modern era you know the the rules were were still being developed at that time, and 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 the the, the systems by which you know uh, you know what characters would appeal to an audience, what type of humor would appeal to a mass audience, uh, were all kind of developed in this era of the twenties and the thirties.
6: And I understand that unionization became very important in when the
7: nineteen thirties. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Around. Um... Uh, uh, around the time of the uh, uh during the great depression uh there was a period when when franklin roosevelt uh uh took over the white house and and did the bank holiday to basically freeze the assets of the banking system to create to to prevent any further collapse hollywood went into kind of a cash panic because hollywood was basically buy uh, borrowing and and uh and spending you know sort of you know you know freely and then when the when the banks suddenly cut back on credit, um, a lot of the Hollywood studios passed on their, their these um, uh, this sort of fiscal austerity onto their workers, which they just told the people in the studios, "You're all getting a 30 percent pay cut. Nothing you can do about it." And uh, this angered a lot of what, what we call the back end of of of, uh, of uh, studio production, which is you know all the people who do the lights and the scenery and all, and um, that began the push towards unionization. Uh, um, if, you, if you look at the history of, of Hollywood uh, you know union guilds, uh, most of them kind of started around the mid-30s and then won recognition by the end of the 30s, by like around 39, 40, like that. And so the cartoonists are following right along with that. The, the first cartoonist guilds were formed around 1935. Uh, the, 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 the Hollywood unit around 1938 and they really started to win recognition in 1941.
6: Then in 1941, you have this major strike, right? So this seems to be one of the most uh, seismic sort of events in, in, in the sort of life of animators. How does this
7: come about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, yeah, because um, I was fortunate enough that when I began my career as an animator, a lot of the golden age artists were, were ending this, uh, you know, these the sort of older folks. And, and, and the thing that struck me was that I never really heard anything about this uh, the, this issue uh, in in books, you know, about you know all those books about you know wasn't Hollywood wacky or wasn't wasn't Walt Disney a wonderful wonderful person, uh, all like that. And then you know the artists who lived through it. It's the most important thing that happened in their lives, like they, they, even more than World War II you, you know was was what did you do uh you know on, on may twenty ninth nineteen forty one when when the picket lines went up and 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 I noticed that some of these artists, either who crossed uh you know the Disney picket line or stayed out uh you know and, and picketed, they carried that animus towards one another to the end of their lives. you know they'd be in their eighties and they're still mad at one another. And I thought, my goodness, what is this thing that happened, you know? And um, and it was this sort of like seismic shift of uh, the, the 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 other studios uh, like Warner Brothers, MGM, Paramount, and all. They formed their uh, union, uh, you know, unionized rather quickly because they were relatively small groups, and all the Disney studio, like uh, you know like the other studios like MGM or or, or Warner Brothers had units of maybe like about two or three dozen people. The Disney studio was like 800 artists and then with like a further like uh, 800 support personnel. So it was a very large, uh, you know, very large studio. And everybody knew that if if unionism didn't work at Disney's, it wasn't going to work anywhere. So everybody knew that that was the final battle.
6: And what were the causes of? drove the animators out on strike.
7: Well, um, yeah, there were several. Um one was the, the, the uh the fact that like the unregulated wages, you know, wages were all over the place. You know, some some artists were doing comparatively well. You know, a few artists close to Walt Disney were were, were being very well compensated and could afford, you know, um, you know, uh, housekeepers and chauffeurs and um you know play polo and then other ones were being paid the equivalent of a of, of a house painter you know uh, uh, you know th- there actually was a story of a of a young woman painter who was was cutting back on her um lunches and and all because to feed her children because her husband had abandoned them because of the great depression he had run off and so she was she was taking care of her mother and and her and her two children by herself and at one point, she actually fainted at her desk from malnutrition. And like, and this was kind of a shock, you know. Uh, um, uh, uh, a lot of the uh, also there was the issue of, of credits, which is um, up until 1940, Walt Disney wouldn't allow any credits on the films but his own name. So you just saw, you know, Walt Disney, you know, period. And and the, to the general public, you know, they probably came away with the idea that Walt Disney did everything himself. You know, and, and, you know, and then when you told people that you were a Walt Disney artist, they were like, what's that? You know, and, and that kind of rankled, you know, the, uh, the, you know, just like with the, with the, uh, with the screenwriters, with WGA, credits were like a big issue of like, of like, you know, I want the credit, you know, I wrote this thing, so I'd like to see, um, uh, you know, I'd like to get the credit for it. That was it. And then, and then there were other things, like in in most of, even though the 40 hour week um, had been, Passed by, you know, by federal law in 1913. In 1941, uh, most of the Hollywood uh, animation studios had a six-day work week. You had a 46-hour week, so you you were, you had to come in on Saturday and 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 do like nine to one or something like that on a, on a Saturday. And if you had a problem with that, you would talk with Uncle Walt or Uncle Max, and 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 they would let you work Thursday night till eleven. And that was a regular week. That was an overtime, and and most overtime was completely uncompensated.
6: And so the Screen Cartoonists Guild wins the strike. How does that change? How does that change any of these issues?
7: Well, um, uh, uh, after the after the guild won the strike, um, uh, everybody's you know like wage scales were set, and and wage minimums were set. And for most of the people in the studio, uh, their salaries doubled overnight. Uh, you know, and that's the thing that's not mentioned in a lot of other you know histories. Um, also, uh, you know, if you if you wanted a vacation or you wanted you know your weekend, you know, you, you you know they went to a forty hour week, and uh, they started to compensate for, for overtime. And if you wanted a vacation or time off or something like that, uh, you, you know, you know, you know, it could be negotiated. Likewise, firings um, were, uh, were now were now like subject to negotiation, where you you got at least two warnings. Uh, there's a famous story of Walt Disney firing somebody on the spot because he overheard a dirty joke in the hallway, and and it wasn't even directed towards him. He just happened to be walking by. As two artists were talking to one another and telling each other a dirty joke, and Walt had the guy fired. <laughs> like, you know, another time Walt Disney fired a, a, an artist during a meeting for swearing too much. <laughs> you know, you, you know, it's, it's it's a bit much. <laughs> you,
6: you've also written that um, that this strike led to new creative styles and new comic strips being formed.
7: Yes, uh, um, at the time, you know, you know, Walt Disney was such a all-pervading influence on the business, and 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 you know the success of his films, and the and and uh, not just uh, in terms of commercial, but also in an aesthetic value, uh, 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 Disney really pushed everybody towards one common kind of style, which was the sort of storybook. Um, a germanic storybook realism style which is like snow white and 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 uh, uh pinocchio um a, a number of the artists by the 40s were getting kind of tired of that style cuz they've been working in that uh in that sort of form for about 10 years and you know and there was a little bit of you know the 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 old song is that older is you know they were thinking of, you know they were thinking more interest you know at the time a lot of the artists, you know, were interested in Diego Rivera and the Mexican muralists, and they were looking at Miro and Montreal And uh, you know, why can't we do something a bit more stylized? And so, when the Disney after the Disney strike, uh, uh, many of the strike leaders, uh, uh, you know, uh, left the Disney studio and formed a separate company uh, uh, called United Productions of America, or UPA, and where they freely experimented with. Uh, uh, you know, very different kinds of styles. And that's sort of the origin of that 1950s, very stylized looking sort of graphic kind of look. That was very popular in the in the 50s, you know, like today, like we, we would call it the Mad Men era.
6: I see. And you entered the industry a generation later, and you've described this as a lost generation of animators.
7: Yes, uh, um, and, you know, in the 1960s, Hollywood mainstream Hollywood went through a contraction, which is basically the 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 original generation that had built Hollywood from you know little farmland to this big giant industry, they were retiring. You know, Jack Warner retired, and Louis B. Mayer left, and Carl Lamley left, and, and 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 Hollywood was faced with the challenge of new mass media like television. So so uh, there, was, there were, like, big cutbacks in production. And one of the first things to go, I, I think, was the cartoon units on a lot of these studios. So, you know, the, the Walter Lantz Studio was connected to Universal and the Fleischer Studio was connected to Paramount. All these, um, you know, larger studios started to contract. So uh, if you were getting out of college in the 1960s and you were saying, well, I want to be an animator, uh, you were discouraged. You were told, "Oh, that's not going. That business is dying. It's not going anywhere. It's a waste. Of, it's a waste of time. Just do something else." So there was very little movement um, in that period. So between the Golden Age generation, you know, the World War II generation, and the Baby Boomers, which who kind of came in in the, uh, the mid seventies, there was this gap. For instance, um, an attorney once told me that the Walt Disney Company. Uh, uh, between 1958 and uh, 1976, only, uh, the, the animation unit uh, only hired 21 people. So it's like 21 people in almost 20 years. That's like really unusual, you know, because there was very little movement. You know? It, it, you know, the artists who were working there in the 60s were by and large the artists who were working there in the 30s. They, had, they didn't really move until they retired. And it wasn't until they were faced with retirement that they started to you know seriously think about training a new generation.
6: And yet the and yet animation seems very healthy today so at what point does it sort of
7: turn? Well, there's a period that that, that we call like the, the 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 second renaissance which is the uh late 80s early 1990s. It kind of begins with like Who Framed Roger Rabbit 1988 and then and then The Little Mermaid and you know in that period of 1989 you had you had The Little Mermaid uh, you had uh the simpsons uh you know uh you know uh, m t v was producing like beavis and Butthead and Ren and Stimpy, and suddenly they became this like second golden age where 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 people people just suddenly rediscovered you know adults as well as children rediscovered why they liked animation i mean when I graduated um uh, from college in nineteen seventy six if you told me fifteen years in the future. The most important show on television is going to be an animated sitcom. This yellow kid with a jagged head. I say you're out of your mind. You know <laughs> that's, that's never going to happen. But you know that 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 turned. You know, uh, just like before, before uh, Little Mermaid and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, um, uh, an animated film like let's say The Fox and the Hound, or uh, you know, or Pete's Dragon would come out. Um, and it would just basically break even; it would make its budget, and then it, and then all the profit was made in merchandise and in ancillary sales like the television. Now, um, uh, you know, a, a modern cartoon comes out like you know, a Despicable Me, or Frozen, and it makes billions. You know, like it's 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 you know it's right up there, right alongside the largest Hollywood blockbusters.
6: And how 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 are the how are the animators doing? Is has the job been sort of streamlined by digital technology or does it pull upon an army of animators?
7: <laughs> uh you know, even with the even with the digital transition, uh the digital transition redefined a lot of the the, the production pipeline. So now instead of um, Layout artists and checkers and and, and 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 painters. You have people doing modeling and rigging and, and compositing. So this, it's new job classifications, but it still requires a lot of people and a lot of man hours. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and I mean that in a generic term because there's many women, of course, you know, you know, working in the in, in the industry as well. Um, uh, you know, and and, and uh, as long as you're still. Large amounts of people who get a weekly paycheck, then you know there's still a relevancy, you know, you know, uh, towards uh, you know collective bargaining.
6: And so, does the union still carry quite a punch? Uh,
7: yeah, yeah, yeah. We try to. Yeah, I mean, Hollywood is still like pretty uh, a pretty unionized area, and and and, the, and and in Hollywood, especially the the animation union, I would say in the animation world, we probably have the highest standard of living uh because because of our union benefits a uh, a lot of other cities when they look at when they uh, uh, which was, when they look towards working out budgets uh, you know of, of their own films will look towards the hollywood model and measure themselves against that
6: it's uh it's it's an industry that we all have in you know, great sort of interaction and many people have great affection for and yet i don't think many people knew much of what you've told us today. So, thanks for joining us. Oh, it
7: was my pleasure.
1: Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. Labor History sources include Today in Labor History from Union Communication Services. Music this week included Memorial Day Massacre by Joe Glazer, available on Smithsonian Folkways Recordings, Union Through and Through by the Eurekas, which is Rob Mitchell and Ken Walther, Talking UFW by Willie Sordell, also available on Smithsonian Folkways Recordings. And No Nos Moveran by Joan Baez. We have links to the complete songs and videos on the Labor History Today podcast page. As always, we hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Labor History Today. Please spread the word by liking us on your favorite podcast app. Also. If you'd like to contribute a labor history item, just shoot us an email at laborhistorytoday at gmail.com and we'll send you details on how you can be part of the podcast. This has been Chris Garlott. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next week.